welcome to you all. Uh, I'm very glad that you joined us tonight. Um, this is um, the Gerda Henkel Visiting Professorship Inaugural Lecture for 2020. And before I go any further, I will say that we will record this lecture um, and the following discussion as well. Um, so if you do not feel comfortable with that, you might want to turn off your screen, turn off your video. So you know, you're welcome to either turn it off or leave it on. Um, but we would ask you to mute your microphones. Um, so because that usually makes for a, a more stable um, uh, event. And um, we have, um, I'm Christina von Hodenberg. I'm the director of the German Historical Institute. Uh, and we also have um, two technical hosts tonight, Pascal Siegrist and Tabea Richardson. And if you have any um, technical questions, you can address them to them in the chat. Um, that is Pascal Siegrist and Tabea Richardson. So um, with that, um, again, a very warm welcome from my side. Um, we do welcome Professor Martina Kessel from the University of Bielefeld. She is the Gerda Henkel Visiting Professor in 2020-21. Um, and the Gerda Henkel Visiting Professorship, I should explain, is, um, is a joint venture of the Gerda Henkel Foundation, the London School of Economics, um, and its uh, International History Department and the German Historical Institute London. And the, this is already the 11th year of this visiting professorship. And the, the, the model is that um, we have a German professor of modern European history coming to London, teaching at the LSE, researching at the German Historical Institute, um, with funding by the Gerda Henkel Foundation. And the purpose is to bring German and British scholars into dialogue, to stimulate comparative work on German history in a European context, and also to promote awareness in Britain of German research on modern European history. Um, the first professorship was awarded in 2009. And there's a long list of distinguished colleagues who um, filled this post and Martina Kessel is the uh, newest recruit to this. And the, uh, my biggest thanks really go to our funder, the Gerda Henkel Foundation, um, which supports scholarship in historical humanities um, across Europe um, and beyond. And um, I just see that um, the Gerda Henkel Foundation representative, Dr. Angela Kühnen, is also with us. And I welcome you and uh, extend my thanks to you uh, for enabling us to, um, to carry out this wonderful um, program um, and build bridges um, for scholars, which is a particularly important task um, that the German Historical Institute devotes itself to in these uh, challenging times. Now, this lecture is co-hosted um, with the London School of Economics and Political Science and its Department for International History. And I'll just hand over very briefly to its head of school, Professor Piers Ludlow. Thankfully, only head of department rather than head of school. I'll leave, I'll leave that, that headache to somebody else. But um, uh, no, it's, it's lovely to be here. And uh, I'm delighted to uh, welcome, welcome you all also on, in, in the name of the International History Department of the LSE. 
Um, we have benefited enormously over the years from uh, the uh, Gerda Henkel funded visiting professors. Uh, they brought a lot of um, interesting ideas and enthusiastic participation to the department. And I can certainly vouch for having learned a lot from them. Um, and I'm sure that that will continue. So it's, it's, a, it's a scheme that we very much value uh, and which I think is beneficial to the visiting professors themselves, to the German Historical Institute, but it certainly is to the LSE and to the LSE students. So um, I'm, I'm delighted that it's continued. We're looking forward very much to welcoming Martina Kesso in person. She's been here virtually um, in this most strange of terms um, and teaching our students already, but uh, hasn't been able to get to London until recently or until now. So we're looking forward very much in the new year to being able to sort of meet her properly, hopefully not always from behind masks, although in these strange times that may have to be the rule for a while. But uh, welcome everybody. Welcome in particular, Martina. Uh, thank you also to the, uh, the Gerda Henkel Stiftung for funding this. And um, I will hand back to Christina now. Thank you. Thank you. Let me say a few words about Martina Kessel before I hand over to her. So she's a professor of um, modern German history and gender history at the University of Bielefeld. Um, her works have dealt with um, German history since the late 18th century, uh, with a particular emphasis on the 20th century, um, particularly um, more recently. She's very interested in the history of emotions and the history of gender, um, the history and construction of um, the self, uh, also of masculinities, um, and the history of violence. And all her work has a political angle. Um, her dissertation um, was on British and French occupation policies towards Germany directly after the Second World War. And her habilitation, which is the second dissertation that German scholars have to write, analyzed the history of boredom in 19th century Germany. And this came out as a book in German in 2001 as Langeweile zum Umgang mit Gefühlen um, und Zeit. Uh, so uh, boredom um, uh, dealing with emotions and time in Germany from the late 18th to the 20th century. Um, and her last book, um, which is, I think, um, related to today's lecture as well, uh, deals with violence and laughter and Germanness between 1914 and 1945. And this appeared in German um, in uh, Stuttgart in 2019. Um, and now, during her time in London, she will actually focus on a brand new project um, on um, constructions of the self and how those frame the development of political institutions in modern German society since the 18th century. Um, and just to put it a little bit in, uh, into context, um, I should say that uh, Martina Kessel was trained at the universities of Cologne, Munich and Maryland uh, in the USA. She had her, uh, she took her PhD um, at the University of Munich in 1988 and then her habilitation at the Free University uh, in Berlin. Uh, she then went on to be an assistant professor also at the Free University and from 1998 onwards, um, she has been professor for modern history and gender history at Bielefeld. 
And she has had uh, visiting professorships and fellowships before, particularly just to um, mention two here at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton and um, at the University of Toronto in, in Canada. And if you're interested in her publications in English, I want to specifically mention um, an article in Gender and History, the journal Gender and History in 2003 called The Whole Man, The Longing for a Masculine World in Germany in the 19th Century. And another um, article or rather like a, a, a forum where different scholars discuss the topic of humor um, in the journal German History in 2015, um, in which she took part. So the topic of today's lecture is an empire of shaming, reading Nazi Germany through the violence of laughter. And I think there's a big difference between laughing with someone and laughing at someone. And we will certainly learn more about this today. Um, just to say, um, uh, Martina will give the lecture. And then if you're interested in asking questions, we will have some time for discussion afterwards. I would ask you to um, write your questions into the, into the chat window, either during the lecture or after the lecture. And um, I can then ask on you to unmute your microphone if you want to ask your question in person, or if I have a lot of questions, I would present those questions to Martina after the lecture. And uh, we hope to go till about eight o'clock. Okay, over to you, Martina, and thank you so much for coming. Well, thank you, Christina and Piers, and uh, thanks for these very kind words of introduction. And of course, I'm very, very grateful to all institutions involved, the GHI, the LSE, and the Henkel Foundation for offering me this position. And uh, actually much looking forward really to meeting as many as possible of you, uh, probably in the next year, although I will be in London also for a few weeks for um, the rest of this year. I am going to upload a PowerPoint now just to show you a few pictures during the paper. And uh, let me, okay, so I hope you can see it. Christina, is it okay? Yeah, all right. That's all right. perfect, yes. And so now let me confirm any prejudice you might have ever heard about German humor. In 1933, members of the Berlin S arrested Hans Weinmann and his friend Horst Rosenzweig, two German Jewish men whom they accused of distributing illegal leaflets. The SA celebrated the arrest by staging a sketch in which they cast the arrested in major roles. They hung up a portrait of Friedrich Ebert, the first and social democratic president of the Weimar Republic, in front of which Weinmann had to say a few words in Hebrew. He then had to bow to the SA introducing himself with the words, Mr. Jew Weinmann, circumcised. Before and after, he had to sing a song in which he described himself as sad. I quote, the great luck came overnight. The Nazis caught me. Why am I so sad? Why am I worrying so much? I could be dead by tomorrow. Both were forced to dance what the SA called a nigger dance to duly selected music. Finally, the SA shaved the men's heads and when Weinmann began bleeding, Rosenzweig had to lick off the blood from his friend's head. In their ritual of humiliation, the SA carefully chose each element for its symbolic meaning. They used the typical threesome of what they considered enemy references, social democracy, blacks and Jews, and forced their victims to inscribe themselves into each feature of otherness. Talking to democracy in a language defined as non-German, dancing to a tune defined as black, pointing to circumcision, 
and finally having to embody the stereotype of the bloodthirsty Jew. The prisoners had to act out with their bodies and senses that they were now sad Jewish losers overcome by cheerful non-Jewish victors. The SA both directed and watched the show of imagined identities displayed before their eyes. And by hurting and mocking their victims, they positioned themselves as German, which meant to be none of those others. Such derisive laughter made Nazi Germany vibrate. It was a structural presence, not a coincidence. It was a recurring experience for those hunted down as non-German that they were laughed at in the very moment they were driven away, tortured or killed. But why? If a society or group decides to kill and exclude others, it can do so when it has the power to do so. Humiliation was not necessary. My argument is that non-Jewish Germans gave an additional message that way. They acted out their understanding of German history and identity, which they framed as a history of having been hurt and humiliated, while now they turned the imaginary around and made it come real upside down. Furthermore, with theatrical forms of mocking, they inscribed themselves into a specific notion of Germanness with a high symbolic bonus. In recent decades, we have learned a lot about motives for participating in the Shoah and the multiple ways how Germans produced a so-called people's community, integrating by excluding. Comparative discussions of modern states have placed Nazi Germany on a continuum of racializing regimes, but Germany still standing out regarding the extent of violence. However, neither racism as a catch-all term nor the desire to create a Volksgemeinschaft really explain this investment of energy. Alon Confino already argued that practices that seem superfluous to us might point to larger ideas of history and memory fueling people's actions. By burning the Hebrew Bible, Confino argued, the Germans wanted to eradicate the memory that Judaism was at the origin of that timeline that counted, namely Western Christian civilization, not in a religious sense, but in the sense of creating a history with Gentile Germans at its origin. My ideas go into a similar direction. I focus on how contemporaries imagined and lived identity and history as German through laughter. That also means that I try not so much to analyze anti-Semitism in Germany, but try to understand how Germanness was defined as non-Jewish. Seen that way, anti-Semitism is not only a set of othering practices directed at others, but becomes visible as a part of the formation of the self. Defining oneself as Jewish became inherent to constructing the self as German. In this paper, I trace such projections by looking at two elements of laughter that can't really be distinguished, but just for reasons of clarity. First, laughter as a narrative concept, constructing a specific meaning of history and identity. And secondly, laughter as a practice to act out the notion of Germanness, which I've conceptualized as the educated artist soldier and will explain below. So first, what does it mean and how did laughter function as a narrative concept? That laughter as a term could become a way to define self and history was due to its specific semantic history in Germany. 
Since the 1800s, the notion of German humor or laughter did not necessarily point to something comical, but it meant to produce a strong Germany through fighting. Those intellectuals who in the early 19th century hoped for a strong successor to the collapsed Old Reich in 1806, defined the absence of such as tragic and accordingly the willingness to fight for it as German cheerfulness. At the same time, these intellectuals participated in the debate in the 1800s, what it meant to be German, a debate that circled around cultural aspects such as language, religion, gender, etc., because there was no one political system and also no revolution to refer to. In this context, some of them shifted the pre-modern religious difference between Christianity and Judaism into an essentialized difference of German and Jewish, or even German versus Jewish. As a result, whoever wanted to exclude German Jews from being German in the process of sort of democratization in the 19th century, including them, uh, used laughter as a binary marker by inscribing Jews a wrong laughter. This did not dominate politics in the 19th century, but it also never disappeared. And it was reactivated whenever there was a move towards more equality or a declaration of national unity beyond any specific identification, such as the so-called national truce in 1914, the beginning of the First World War. And so for people who were versed in reading the media, it didn't really come as a surprise in October 1914 when the anti-Semitic agitator Theodor Fritsch described German Jews as the laughing third who would not belong to any identity or society, but would transgress all boundaries to profit from all and then cheer their success. And this last point was central by projecting Jews not only as transgressive, but as mocking bodies. Fritsch painted them not just as profiteers, but as wanting to ridicule and shame those whom they supposedly exploited. Thus, the trope of laughter could, if people chose, circle around the idea of shaming or being shamed. During the First World War and the Weimar Republic, those who wanted to continue the war at first, and then those who disliked the Republic, and so that's a totally diverse group of people and not all of them turning into Nazis, but they sharpened the notion into describing German history as the history of hurt bodies and shamed feelings. And so after 1918, opponents of Weimar democracy not only accused Democrats and German Jews as having caused defeat in the Versailles Treaty, which is well known, they also charged them with mocking the hapless Germans or inviting others to do that ridicule. So when the socialist Kurt Eisner, minister president of Bavaria from November 1918 until he was murdered shortly afterwards, when he demanded that Germany should recognize its responsibility for starting the war, highly sensitive issue, the periodical Simplicissimus attacked him as only inviting the Entente's malicious joy. And given the broader understanding of laughter as denoting identity, the journal also defined the German Jewish politician and intellectual as non-German. The attack on Eisner indicated what happened in the Weimar Republic. Again, as is well known, Political debates often did not circle around how to do democracy, but whether to have democracy at all or not. But the Republic's opponents moved further. They shifted the discussion about which political system to have 
into a debate about which political system was adequate for their idea of Germanness, thus not only intertwining political debates with identity, but doing politics as identity politics. And they did this by attacking political opponents as being non-German, who by that very definition could not act and would not act in the German interest, thus shifting the debate from political issues to personalities. Two other tropes associated with this debate about the right or wrong laughter show how evocatively they projected Weimar politicians as violating and humiliating the body politic. Far beyond right-wing circles, the Versailles Treaty was delegitimized as a rape, picking up on how the Entente had criticized German war politics in 1418 and thereby turning the legal act of the treaty into an illegal, hurtful and shaming practice violating German boundaries. In correlation, opponents of democracy described politicians as different as Kurt Eisner or the two successive foreign ministers, Walter Rathenau and Gustav Stresemann, as pimps, projecting them as figures that forced Germany to prostitute itself to its enemies and thus themselves willfully injuring and mortifying all Germans. Both tropes turned Republicans into perpetrators against German identity, while also identifying them as Jewish, as both tropes were redundant in anti-Semitic othering. And by these processes, democracy appeared not only as the wrong political system, but as a space that allowed both the body politic and collective feelings to be shamefully hurt and ridiculed. The National Socialists moved this storyline into the center when they reorganized in 1925 after the failed putsch in 23. They presented their own experience as a story of hurt bodies and chained feelings and sharpened it into a sequence of events that would unfold inevitably if they did not stop it by force. In his so-called foundational speeches in 1925, Hitler presented a three-step version of history, which he promised to reverse. Their opponents, so he claimed, had first tried to silence the Nazis, had then ridiculed them, and finally would attack them bloodily because they could not stop them otherwise. And so silencing, mocking, and attacking bloodily became the blueprint. All demands and promises were couched in the same terms. Party members, so it rang again and again, should do their duty so that, I quote, the enemies of our people will not find themselves laughing anymore. While Hitler and other leading national socialists promised, for example, in the parliamentary elections in 1930, that, in the, that the future would belong to that man who, I quote, laughingly defines himself as a German and not anymore as a worker or middle-class man. And just to give you one picture of how that was visualized, that the picture by Heinrich Hoffmann, his personal photographer in the late 20s, and it presents him in civilian attire, a man in the hat, a very kind of middle-class um, element, and the caption reads that Hitler is laughing about the enemy press that is accusing him of sort of having illegal or immoral international transaction and thereby um, hurting national boundaries. While focusing on the Jew as the enemy in all their speeches, National Socialists described the Jew as, I quote, standing smilingly behind Democrats and communists, waiting for them to destroy Germany so he could take over. Even more graphically, in 1929, 
Hitler described Jews as, I quote, tossing and rolling with laughter about the stupidity of those who do not notice that they never aim for equality, but for dominance over the German, unquote. The identification of any other political option than Nazism with being Jewish, again, turned political choices into an either or debate of identity, if and as long as being German was defined as non-Jewish. Thereby, Democrats and communists or anybody else leaning away from Nazism could be defined not only as a political traitor, but also as going Jewish, losing their Germanness. To be sure, nobody was being victimized as claimed. This is rather the logic that Omar Bartov, Doris Bergen and others have discussed to claim victimization in order not to have to argue one's position, avoiding one of the major demands of democracy. And self-victimization only worked when all others were projected as perpetrators, because without perpetrator, no victim. And then the storyline of self-victimization allowed to narrow down political options to the either or of either being against the Weimar Republic or opting for a shaming and non-German system. National socialists coupled their storyline of victims and perpetrators with a second binary of winners and losers in the sense that all those unfair winners of 1918 would, as the saying had it, would as mocking perpetrators forcibly turn the Nazis and Germany at large into the position of victim and loser of the present. After 1933, they changed only the binary of winners and losers by celebrating their victory. The scene I described in the beginning was a case in point of how they orchestrated the shifted positioning of imagined identities. But they always kept the self-interpretation as possible victims by accusing the persecuted of remaining mocking perpetrators who would smile derisively even now and would destroy Germany the minute they received the chance again. In this sense, the Gestapo invoked a Jewish laughter to paint the persecuted as guilty. During the November pogrom of 1938, the Gestapo shut down the Berlin office of the Zentralverein, formerly of German citizens of Jewish faith, one of the last Jewish organizations still working in much reduced and controlled form. Hans Oppenheimer, a journalist and editor for them, fled Germany right afterwards and wrote down a few days later how he experienced the situation. He emphasized the absence of physical violence, but quoted the few sentences the Gestapo had uttered, such as, you will see what happens next, displaying their superior knowledge, or you will stop laughing soon. In brackets, Oppenheimer added, of course, nobody had laughed, underlining that no actual behavior could ever dissolve the construction. In his often quoted speech from January 1939, Hitler acted as potential victim and winner when he alleged that Jews were about to start another world war and promised that then they would be eradicated from Earth. He also repeated what he kept repeating until about 1943, namely that his prophecy the biggest promise the Nazis made to solve the Jewish problem had before 1933 been most loudly mocked by the Jewish people. And he added, I quote, I believe that this resounding laughter has by now choked in the throat of Jewry in Germany. With this, I am not saying that National Socialists planned the Holocaust since the 20s, 
because kind of the radicalization of how to fulfill their major promise developed from 1933 onwards into the 40s. But I am saying that they came to power by framing politics as identity politics in either all terms of perpetrators and victims plus winner and loser and promising to reverse the latter. And they never moved away from it. Uh, it became rather a major pastime in after 1933 to project the persecuted as perpetrators with people in all sorts of contexts proving their Germanness by attacking those whom they charged with a crime of identity. And just to show you um, two more pictures, this picture I show you here now is not becoming iconic, but this one is actually becoming iconic in the 30s and 40s. And the left one is the cover of a two volume collection of international caricatures about Hitler that I collected and put out in 33, 34, and then given in a sense, a new interpretation by the editor. Um, and it's Hitler sort of smiling down condescendingly on all those wrong bodies, if you want, attacking him with helpless ink against his major deed. And the right picture you see um, that is taken from a publication in 1934, and it came up in like when you bought cigarettes, you could get it, you know, in cigarette pictures and so on. Uh, but in this volume on the left, you have on the very last page, I just didn't have the photograph now, you have the, the top in a sense, you see Hitler's um, head from the side with his shoulders, and that is on the very last page. So if you go through this volume, in a sense, the cover, and then the last page kind of gives you the process of the Nazis taking power, leaving out those intellectuals. So at the very end of the book, in a sense, they have arrived at where they are and they don't have to talk about how to do away with people. They're just showing it uh, how every enemy kind of um, disappeared. And just one more picture I haven't talked about, sort of about the dialogical character of this kind of laughter. Uh, this is just one an element to show that it's a private album um, called German Humor since 1933, and it's given as a Christmas present in 1939. Uh, and this is kind of the, the first page after the cover, uh, and the heads of kind of the, you know, the biggies in the Nazi party are cut out, out in from print media, and every remaining page is um, filled with a handwritten joke. Um, so if the message is, in a sense, we're talking the same kind of language, you're using the same kind of communication as you do. And it's kind of one of those dialogical sort of communications without words uh, that we can find in Germany at that time. And with that, I turn to laughter as a practice, performing imagined identities. Not only the organizations of violence, such as the SA, SS or the army, but ordinary Germans with and without a function engaged in turning Germany into an empire of shaming. It is also the theatrical character of their behavior that stands out. At the front, such acts as I described in the beginning have been interpreted as sealing the group cohesion of the perpetrators. In the camps, guards offered themselves thereby as the best personnel for a career in the new orbits of power. Both I find very important arguments. But these acts might in addition also be read in, yet an, in, in the light of yet another element of German culture. I call this the idea of the artist soldier, a persona fusing Geist and Macht, art and power that supposedly had failed to meet in the early 19th century when Goethe had not inspired another Frederick to come around. 
1870-71, however, Bismarck and his army chief Moltke were praised by the population as educated artist soldiers or artist politicians because they, so the saying went, created a German nation through their art of war against France. Since then, to project somebody as such offered the highest symbolic bonus in German culture. It meant you did not have to be a politician, a member of the military or an artist, but you needed to be projected as willing to fight, have the credentials somehow to appear in public, which was usually meaning education in Germany and also uh, more being addressed to males, and to appreciate art defined as German. Until the 1920s, this projection was politically open, claimed from right to left, but it was socially elitist, elite white man with a Christian background jockeying against each other and keeping it from anybody else, notably the Jewish middle classes. And here again, the First World War became important on two accounts. First, the Jewish middle classes embodied the ideal way before 1914, usually being highly educated and displaying a sense for the arts, but when they fought in the First World War, they visibly added the final element to be the ideal persona. So they entered not only society and politics, but the inner core of a most esteemed notion of Germanness. Secondly, those who did not want to accept defeat in 1918 defined the Versailles Treaty as an attack on this identity. During the discussions in early 1919, about reducing the German commercial fleet after Germany had been the second biggest economic global player behind the US before the First World War, the Simplicissimus displayed a fattened and derisive Uncle Sam talking down to a sad German, half soldier, half German Michel. And I have this picture here. You can't really see the face of the American, but he's kind of sneering down uh, on this hunched figure. And the caption read, uh, so you have lost your commercial fleet as well. Now you can turn back again to being a people of thinkers and poets. So while German Jews seemed to get in within, the Entente was defined as not only wanting to crush German power, but destroy that very identity that at least according to the Simplicissimus had come into its own for the entire nation through the First World War. In the Weimar Republic, the Nazis appropriated and changed this persona. They narrowed, it they narrowed its political applicability to themselves only by throwing it open socially. They offered anybody a symbolic share in the ideal if they went along with Nazi politics. So to the Prussian aristocrats, to professionals, to mine workers and to women if they stayed in an appropriate position. They staged Hitler as the greatest artist soldier ever because he was supposedly a born artist soldier, thereby cutting out education in the formal sense. And he was also called superior to Hindenburg because Hindenburg was seen as only having gotten this charisma through his social status. They also radicalized what they called the art of politics. They defined not only war as had been the case until then, but any anti-democratic, anti-left and anti-Jewish violence as the art to create a new society. They drew on the modern idea of the great artist who could be great only if he followed his own intuition without being hampered by democratic rules. And by transferring this self-description onto politics and violence, 
they allowed themselves to translate humiliating and murderous politics into creative and productive behavior, into the masterpiece of true Germans producing their own self by persecuting those defined as non-German. Staging the non-Jewish self as an artist soldier happened in many forms, but also by staging the disempowerment of the Jewish self. And this took often one of two forms. Either they forced the persecuted to take part as the SA did, or non-Jews themselves acted out the fate of the loser as in carnival parades since 1933 that presented each major step of persecution in visible and audible forms of public shaming. Carnival floats in Cologne, Dusseldorf or Mainz, in Nuremberg or Singen visualized in live tableau how German Jews were forced to emigrate, had their property taken away and were disenfranchised. And this is one photograph from Singen, Southwest Germany, 1934. Uh, and that is the favorite motto of floats in, in any parade that I have pictures from. Uh, and it's members of sort of the shooting club and the innkeepers association. So it's kind of uh, Germany being a society of associations. It's like almost any association taking part. And so it's also the notable, if you want, you know, respected people in the community uh, who act out uh, what they are able to do as a society. And this photograph from Schwabach, south of Nuremberg in 1936, um, the float performed how two of the town's German Jewish businessmen had lost their business the year before. Their names, David Bleicher and Moritz Rosenstein, were corrupted into one, David Bleichstein, as you can read at the top and at the side, suggesting that all Jews were like one. With their clothing and fake hair, the actors transformed German businessmen into Eastern European Orthodox Jews and puny peddlers. The float demonstrated what it meant to be German. They could bring back Jews in stereotyped form into a public the excluded could no longer define on their own terms. Furthermore, the debasing guise in which the actors appeared turned allegations which had no basis into something to be seen. They visualized the standard attack that German Jews only hid their real Jewishness under a superficial, superficial veneer. When Jewish Germans self-defined as German, they were accused of hiding illegitimately behind the mask and committing a crime of identity. When carnival actors stepped in and out of their disguise, they translated anti-Jewish allegations from medial science systems into lived experience and asserted themselves bodily as masters over a difference they could otherwise never prove. A newspaper for the Munich parade in 1935, which was joined by a tank, spelled out that such behavior was one way of being an artist soldier. The anonymous author started with a rhetorical question whether it was not counterintuitive to see soldiers and jokers side by side, only to affirm emphatically that German society would only be fully integrated when nobody in this quote unquote cheerful society would be able anymore to tell soldiers and jokers apart, those who fought and those who offered fun. The floats show that bodies do not only represent social order, but are the site of the ultimate experience of symbolic structures. In the process of producing sociality, 
Carnivalists turned the body itself into the carrier of the image they wanted to project of themselves and others. In addition, laughter was and is an effective means to confirm ascriptions and make them stick. Ritual degradation operates through and in a public that might consist of just two people, but in this case of many more. Whether spectators were laughing along or not, by their very presence they created a space in which meanings could be conveyed. Actors demonstrated how they created a new present and future, eine Zeit ohne Beispiel, as Goebbels called it, a time with no precedent and comparison. By acting out Jewish losers, they were German winners, and by their theatricality, they received the ultimate laurel wreath for the symbiosis of art and fighting. Humiliating acts only broadened in scope and brutality since 1938, but did not change in character. The self-referential justification became only more pronounced during the Shoah, when Goebbels ordered that those who were being killed had to be portrayed ever more ruthlessly as the guilty ones. As ever more non-Jews had immediate power over bodies defined as non-German, both at the front and in the camps, the instances multiplied where they forced the deported to embody and thereby prove that they were committing a crime of identity. For example, during the pogrom of 1938, it was mostly educated middle-class men who were deported to Dachau Buchenwald. When prisoners managed to discuss literature or philosophy among themselves, that is when they acted as the Bildungsbürger they were, people of formation and education, guards who found out forced them to fight each other until they hurt one another, turning them from Germans into Jewish perpetrators, even against their own. During the occupation of Eastern Europe, not only the occupiers destroyed the Hebrew Bible, but they forced Orthodox Jews to walk over it or to tear it up. And by forcing them to turn against their own culture, those who could force them self-defined as winners and as German. And such amusement, as the Germans called it, was particularly prominent on the Jewish Sabbath. In a context where Jewish religion was much more present for self-defining than in Germany, attacking its symbols meant attacking Jewish identity per se. Above the gas chamber complex in Treblinka, guards hung up a Star of David, and in front of one entrance, a Turakic curtain with the inscription that this was the Lord's gate through which all the righteous should go, turning the sacred symbols and meanings of Jewish religion into the symbols of death to strike emotionally before killing. Other guards used spatial boundaries to act out their history of identity. A number of deportees described how SS men in different camps drew lines that prisoners were forbidden to cross. Then they threw a cigarette or something else over the line, demanded that a prisoner fetch it back and shot them the second they crossed the line. In violent sketches, the SS forced prisoners to transgress into forbidden territory and then turned them into losers of history and identity. Forcing the persecuted to embody perpetrators, Germans allowed themselves to act as such without self-defining as such. By directing a theater of murder, they staged themselves as artist soldiers, creating a new form of sociality through destroying. 
Such practices mirrored and recreated time and again the worldview in which life for Germans meant through the death of the Jew, as SS Sturmbannführer Bruno Müller put it in August uh, 1941. That's the lowest officer rank in the SS. When he took over as commander of the Einsatzgruppe 11, one of the killing commanders behind the army, Müller said before he shot a woman and her three-year-old child, you have to die so that we can live. Or as a prisoner deported to Sachsenhausen commented the sarcastic camp motto, work sets you free. Yes, through chimney three. To sum up, in mocking the persecuted, Germans placed themselves as winners of history and identity. And by the very practice of sharing such a love, they allowed themselves not having to argue into any direction, not towards the victims and also not among themselves. Secondly, while such practices may not be reserved to Nazi Germany, the meaning they created and conveyed was specifically German. People claimed to be German and the very best by turning the idea of the artist soldier into a figure that came into its own by allowing itself to ignore any boundaries for violence. The question why German Jews were identified as the greatest threat to Germanness invites reading modern German history also as a history of imagined identities, with too many people willing to prove their Germanness by displaying total power over those defined as non-German. The storyline of Germanness as non-Jewish, present since the 1800s, did not dominate politics in earlier stages. However, the self-identification became ever more prominent in exactly those periods of history that we are used to call democratization, when German Jews became indistinguishable from other Germans, politically, legally, socially, culturally, then by fighting, and then Weimar democracy nominally allowing full equality. And it became deadly when politics as the practice of negotiating conflicting interests, which democracy also meant, was exchanged by politics as identity politics. That also means that the idea of identity politics can not only be applied to marginalized groups trying to be accepted as historiography often does, but also to groups in power who define democracy as a threat to their entrenched positions of power and the privileges that come with it. After 1918, too many people resented the idea that democracy could do without identity beyond formal citizenship, while they insisted on Germanness being defined by difference with a capital J. Those Germans who turned into Nazis played that to their advantage. They not only moved anti-Semitism into the center, but the idea of proving one's own worth as German by proving not to be Jewish. They formed the first mass party and then attracted always just enough people by creating a malleable and totally conflicting program of many interests, but all based on this principle. So to pinpoint probably wrongly, but while the communists demanded a new society, shocking the middle classes, and then wanted a new man to live in it, the Nazis offered a new man and a new woman the notion of Germanness with a highest symbolic bonus as a trophy for anyone defining as German if they went along creating a society fit for it. But they never defined that society or its political structure 
beyond saying that the present and the future would be for Germans only, because identity politics were their lifeline, a lifeline defined by death. That explains to my mind why in the last days of the war, non-Jewish civilians drove back those few that had managed to flee the death marches or a camp, drove them back to the killing commandos. Historians have argued that happened because these few were witnesses to what had happened, and that is an important point. But the most crucial reason may have been that they were survivors. Because for those who did read the Shoah as the greatest Leistung, the promise fulfilled, the biggest achievement of an identity defined as German, for them, one surviving Jew was one too many. Thank you. <laughs>